Welcome to the ID for Africa podcast series. ID for Africa, the voice of Africa on identity matters. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Joseph Attic, Executive Chairman of ID for Africa, and I'd like to welcome you to our 12th livecast episode, which is part of our Country Progress Report series and which will spotlight the Mauritius identity ecosystem. But before we do that, I'd like to share with you our pipeline for the upcoming five livecast episodes and call your attention to where we have open calls for participation. These calls allow us to survey the community for high quality content and to broaden our panelist base. So please submit proposals where appropriate. Coming up next on February 24th, we have infant identity management and the legal identity agenda. This livecast will examine what is needed to get identity right from the start, which includes policy discussions and an exploration of business practices and technologies, including the latest on infant biometrics and the traceability to the source through linkage with parents' digital IDs. This panel is now complete, but if you have anything to add, you can join the community voices during the event itself. Registration is open today. Please do not wait. Then on March 10th, we will commemorate International Women's Day, which falls earlier in that week with a special session on gender matters in identity systems. We will have some research presentations on barriers to access and gender equity, followed by a panel on policy where we will invite representatives of the identity authorities in African countries to join the discussion. This session still has an open call for participation, which will close February 15. So please submit quickly if you'd like to contribute to this important topic. Operator, please add the link in the chat so that people can click on it and get the, get the submission directly from the chat. Then on April 8th and April 29th, we will have part one and part two of a topic entitled vaccination certificates and identity management. This is an important topic, timely and controversial. We have opened a call for participation earlier this week and based on the high level of interest and content quality, we think we will be running this as a series. We have not selected the final lineup. So if you have something pertinent to say, please let us know. This is open to everyone, including industry, development agencies, civil society and government. Then on May 13, we have identity management and biometrics in elections in Africa. By and large, throughout the COVID pandemic, Africa has managed to respect the electoral calendar for the year without any hiccups. We will examine what's becoming the de facto standard for how to conduct credible and efficient elections in Africa. We will be opening a call for participation later in March. So please be on the lookout for that. We should be coming back in May as well with some new episodes in the CPR, the Country Progress Report series. So stay tuned for that. Before I forget, if you are watching us on YouTube, please subscribe and activate the bell so we can keep you informed throughout with some great content. Of course, we would love to have you participate live so you can be part of the dialogue as it happens through the chat, live question and answer and community voices. Speaking of which, if you want to join the community voices, you can press the button to raise your hand on Zoom when I invite participation 
and the operator can elevate you to the panel. Don't be shy, be pertinent and be heard. Vous pouvez également suivre cette session en français simultané en sélectionnant la chaîne française sur votre application Zoom. Back to today's topic, the Mauritius identity ecosystem. Mauritius may be a small country with a population of about 1.3 million people, but it has already dealt with some of the more intricate issues related to identity management, often encountered in countries with populations orders of magnitude larger than that of Mauritius. This is particularly true when it comes to legal issues and privacy, including constitutional questions surrounding biometrics. The very same questions that are now facing several countries around the world, including India, Nigeria, and Jamaica. Mauritius had to deal with these questions early on and has had to harmonize their identity management practices with a well-developed legal environment which continues to inform what can and cannot be done. The outcome is a performant and scalable identity ecosystem that has earned the trust of their citizens, in part because of the legal guardrails that balance public interest with personal rights as provided for by the Constitution and the Civil Code. Mauritius has also paved the way for its digital transformation with an ICT strategy anchored on digital identity that prepares the country for the 2030 objective of digital Mauritius and the data-driven economy, all the while paying attention to governance and robust privacy and data protection laws. It is for these reasons that we have chosen to study the Mauritius identity ecosystem in the hope that through dialogue with the country's officials, we will document lessons learned that may be relevant for the development agenda in other countries. There is no shortage here, as you will see. Now, I'd like to welcome the distinguished panel for Mauritius. With us today, representing the various identity stakeholders, we have Mr. Gopal, the Permanent Secretary from the Prime Minister's Office, Mr. Ayelu, Registrar of Civil Status, Civil Status Division, who's also the ID for Africa Ambassador, Mrs. Madhub, the Data Protection Commissioner, Mr. Dindoyal, who's Civil Status Officer, Civil Status Division, Mr. Hawabai, Chief Technology Officer of the Ministry of Technology, Communication and Innovation, Mr. Hitu, Lead Analyst of the Ministry of Finance, Economic Planning and Development, Mr. Valaidon, Dr. Valaidon, Acting Regional Public Health Superintendent from the Ministry of Health and Wellness, Mr. Danish uh, Juahir, Superintendent of Police, Mr. Ramlal, Chief Clerk Representative Passports and Immigration Office, and then Mrs. Siwu, who's the Principal Electoral Officer with the Electoral Commission. I want to thank the government of Mauritius and in particular the Prime Minister's office for graciously accepting our invitation and for letting us explore with them the lessons that we can extract from their experience for the benefit of everyone else in Africa. Their cooperation has been exemplary and the movement truly appreciates this kind of collaboration. I thank the panelists individually for taking the time to be with us today after the end of their workday we recognize it's the evening in Mauritius and your presence with us at this hour is a testament of your dedication to a good cause. So please accept our sincere thank you. Finally, 
Uh, before we start, I also would like to thank our development partners, the Gates and Omidyar Foundations, for their support and for making the live casts possible. We are going to start with a short video on Mauritius provided to us by the Mauritius Development Board, the Mauritius government, to be followed by introductory remarks by Mr. Gopal. Afterwards, I will ask Mr. Gopal, Mr. Ayelu, and Madame Madoub to remain on the panel with me. We will bring in the other representatives back one by one as the session advances. We will start by exploring the foundational issues around identity, including the constitution and the legal frameworks. We will then invite the Ministry of Technology to share with us how they are supporting the vision of digital identity and digital Mauritius. We will then launch into a journey through the sectorial collaborations and use of identity in banking, health, law enforcement and immigration and elections. Let us start this live cast with some remarks from Mr. Gopal, Permanent Secretary of the Prime Minister's Office. Yeah, let me, uh, first of all, in the name of Mauritius, thank ID for Africa and in particular to Dr. Artic to have organized this webinar, which will give us the opportunity to showcase the identity ecosystem of Mauritius. In fact, the whole team present today, we are very enthusiastic to share our experience with you. Apart from the PMO, which I'm representing, and the civil status division, which is being represented by Mr. Ayelu, we are all, we are having representative from the different sectors uh, involved in identity, which is which are going to share experience, their experiences with you and the, the, the best practices with you. Now, I would like to give you an overview of the civil status division and how it operates within the national system and other ages of the Prime Minister's Office. First of all, as you must have seen on the website of uh, the Civil Status Division, the uh, civil registration in Mauritius dates back to the 18th century. The Central Civil Status Office holds record as far back as 1811, and the older ones that are of, inter of interest are kept at the National Archives. The Civil Status uh, Division offers a variety of service. Registration of both, registration of marriage between non-citizens, between non-citizens and, and citizens of Mauritius and between citizens of Mauritius as well. It also deal with the registration of death with, and with the registration of religious marriage having civil effect. But the civil status division does not operate in a legal vacuum. As you rightly said, Dictatic, uh, it is governed by, it is supported by a legal framework, which consists of the Civil Status Act. We have also, as you said, the Code Civil Mauritia, and there is also the Data Protection Act, and as well as uh, certain uh, um, uh, legislation which uh, govern um, the flow of electronic data. So uh, the Civil Status Division 
has been established under the Civil Status Act, which makes provision for the above services and also makes provision for the powers and responsibilities of the registrar. It also makes provision for amendments of entries, change of name, and offences and penalty under the Act. Given the importance of vital statistics, the Civil Status Division falls under the aegis of the Prime Minister's Office, and the Honourable Prime Minister, who is the Executive Head of the country, is the Minister to whom has been assigned the subject of civil status. But I must tell you also that the law is not static, because as and when required, different provisions of the Act are amended with a view to facilitating the work of the registrar and to adapt to new situations. For example, during this financial year, which ends on the 30th June uh, 2021, several amendments have been brought to the Civil Status Act, such as it has been included in the Act the notion of audition, which empowers the registrar to carry inquiry with a view to discouraging and preventing fake marriages. We have uh, amended the Act to empower the registrar to amend and rectify any civil status entry which involves a clerical typing or numerical mistake. This was not so before. It was uh, rectifying and um, rectifying any mistake the onus was on the citizen before that. And this was quite difficult and cumbersome to them. The uh, one of the other amendment is also has also empowered the registrar to grant to grant access to the uh, CPD to any ministry or government entity in such a manner and to such an extent as he may approve. Now, a law practitioner cannot obtain civil status documents of a person without the prior approval of that person. This has been included because we, we have been receiving complaints uh, from uh, many citizens of Mauritius, which uh, have told us that uh, their data were being used without their permission. We have also amended the Act to provide, to, to make provision to cover the COVID, the COVID period, because at a certain period of time, we were under confinement as well, and during which there was no movement at all. As regards budget, to be able to function as an, in an independent manner, a separate budget is allocated to the civil status division each year. Our financial year runs from the 1st of July of one year to the 30th of June of the next year. This includes, with regard to the budget, it includes both recurrent and capital budget. Capital budget is mainly concerned with the purchase of new equipment and their maintenance. Now, um, the Civil Status Division, in association with other stakeholders, mainly uh, the Central Informatics Bureau, 
which falls under the purview of the Ministry of ICT, of which uh, Mr. Halbai is a, um, a technical head. Um, we have made several in, uh, innovation to the CSD. For example, in 2013, the Mauritius National Identity Scheme has enabled the country to make a big leap forward. And now the country is equipped. This, the system, the, uh, the, the statistic system is equipped with a new Mauritius national identity card, identity card system, whereby smart ID card are issued with chips and safety features. We have a certificate authority, which is meant for authentication purposes. And we have a CPD, which is the central population database, which allow for the sharing of data through the information highway. The head office and the sub-office of the CSD with the support of the Prime Minister's office and the CIB, that is the MTCI, is now fully computerized. There is an ongoing seven-year digitalization project to preserve records which are as far back as year 1811. And this computerization um, scanning um, project is expected to end in 2023. Presently, we are on our way to setting up an IT system together with the CSD and the CIB so as to have a common database between the passport and immigration office, the civil status office, the prime minister's office, and the judiciary on certain vital uh, data. With assistance of the Ministry of ICT, the online application of birth and marriage certificates is now a, a reality in Mauritius. We are not static, as I told you, we are moving forward. During this financial year and the coming financial year, we are looking forward to revamp the whole MNIS scheme and to, to have it replaced with a state-of-the-art system by 2023 with more features and with enhanced security features. We are also, during this financial year, in the process of revamping the CPD, the uh, Central Population Database, and hopefully by next year or before next year, this will be completed. We are having at the Prime Minister's office, we have been setting up a, a, a committee which look together with the CSD and the MTCI, and we do co-op other members as and when required to review all the difficulties that are being faced by the CSD and to find solution to them. We're also setting up, we have already set up a complaints committee to come up with policy decision as and when required to rectify as and when there are problems. So these are uh, in a nutshell an, an overview of how the Prime Minister's Office 
is interacting with the CSD so that to permit the CSD uh, to operate within the national system with a view to giving a better service to the citizen of Mauritius. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Gopal, for this uh, wonderful overview. Uh, operator, could you be, please bring in Mr. Ayelu and Mrs. Madhub to the panel um, so that we can build on the discussion on the general remarks um, that the permanent secretary has given. I want to start by um, focusing a little bit more on the MNIS, which is Mauritius National Identity Scheme. Uh, just, just to be clear, is this an uh, voluntary or this is an obligation on every citizen. Could you please describe the scheme and explain um, what's the requirement to have it? Mr. <clears throat> Ayelu, um, can, I, can I give you the floor? Yes, sure, sure, yes. Uh, thank you, Mr. Koppel, for this very good presentation uh, on the ecosystem of, of Mauritius. Yes, I'm uh, Sayulu William, uh, Registrar of Civil Status. Yes, doctor. Um, under the MNIC Act, his citizens, when he turns uh, to 18, uh, he has six months uh, to come to the, uh, to the MNIC unit. We have three actually in Mauritius, one in the capital city, that is Port Louis, one is Rosil, and one in the district of Flak, which is found in the east uh, of the region. So three, uh, three uh, MNIC units. The person has six months to come to us to make his national identity card. So upon the first application, it is free of charge. The documents that the citizen has to bring is his recent birth certificate. Of course, if, if he's turning 18, he will not have any national identity card with his first application. And then the, uh, the documents, the extract of, of the parents. So we are, give, we are going to process the application and give to the citizens a very short time because everything is computerized, a national identity card, which, which he can use in his life cycle. And the first issue is free of charge. This, mm -hmm. this, so this, this is uh, the situation. And if you allow me just to add also, uh, now when the citizens turn to 80, we change the national identity card and uh, we give him, issue him with a new one, whereby we engrave the SC logo, that is senior citizen. And with that national identity card, the citizens can travel freely by bus everywhere in the country. Even you can use the light rail system, the metro, how we call it here, free of charge. So this is, this, these are uh, one of the benefits of having the national identity card uh, in Mauritius. Just, just to be explicit, yes. lesson number one, uh, the, the national identity is required for everybody. So you require everybody to carry it and you require them to present it. This is not an optional or voluntary scheme. Yes. No, no, no it's, it's an obligation upon every citizen yes. to have uh, uh, the national identity card as soon as they reach the age of 18. The age of 18. Now, yes. do you have to establish um, your legal status uh, in the country before, like for example, your citizen, status or, or do you have different categories do you have refugees do you have residents do you have is there since everybody who's 18 and over needs to have it uh, what categories does it cover it covers mauritian citizens on the national okay. identity card for workers they have a special card for them a residence okay. card or occupational permit card there are special card which is which are delivered to them by the police uh, for them to, to be able to stay and function within the country. 
Yes. Okay. Now, now, what would you say that you've your the coverage in terms of the adult population of the MNIS, the the National Identity Card? What is the coverage in, in currently? Yes, I, I mean, uh, yes, I think it is almost over ninety percent. Yes, only 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 if you uh, some uh, only if, uh, very very small uh, uh, percentage of population who have not uh, done the National Identity Card. Uh, Many of them are abroad, you see. So when they come okay. to, to Mauritius, especially those who have uh, the youngs who have uh, gone uh, for university, university studied abroad, so they are not here. But but but, but for them, uh, there is no penalty because it is an offense not not to uh, make your national identity card. Uh, identity card, sorry. So they have what we call you know, illegal excuse. So those who are abroad or some people who are resistant, but this is a very small but very small percentage. We have mass conversion. Yeah, in okay. 2013. Okay, very good. So, so we have uh, we have a mature scheme that is essentially reaching total coverage of the population. I'd like to explore the legal framework governing this scheme, but I'd like to do it in a historical context because bringing the story um, towards where you are today, that journey is very very insightful. So, correct me if I'm wrong. You started with the act was in 1985, ahead of many, many other countries. You yes. had an act, 1985, which you amended in 2013. Is that correct? No. Yes, the MNIC Act, yes. The yes. Civil Citizens Act, 1982, and the MNIC Act, 1985. That's correct. Yeah. Right. So, so the act, um, actually the amended act, obviously 2013, has one lesson that I, I'd like to share with the with the with the with our audience. The act basically said it stipulates that the registrar of civil status, which is you, William, right, shall sure. keep a register, electronic or otherwise, in which a citizen's particulars are recorded. Furthermore, section three two enumerates these particulars as follows: sex, names and such reasonable or necessary information as may be prescribed regarding the identity of the person. I liked that language. The reason I like that language is because it does not say what technology, it does not say it should be biometrics. It just says necessary information as may be prescribed regarding the identity of the person. So I think I urge anybody who's building uh, parliamentary acts to really focus on making the language technology neutral. Of course, you operationalize the National Identity uh, or Civil Register Act regula regulation through, um, through a regulation. You, you, the minister would issue or the prime minister's office will issue and you will say this is done through biometrics, which is what happened right in 2013. So far, so good, right? So we, we, you've, got, you've got an act of parliament that basically said it's up to you to decide what these particulars are. Then in 2013, there was the regulation that came out and said you must give fingerprints in order to get the smart card. So this was the first time where Mauritius uh, went into the biometric era. Correct. Right? Okay, so all is well. Um, it sounds like there's no, you know, all standard. However, there was a constitutional challenge. Uh, basically, Mr. Madhewu, a Mauritian citizen, challenged the constitutionality of the 2013 Act as a legislative vehicle for the new smart card ID project. And basically, the plaintiff 
alleged several violations of his rights. Do, do, you, do you care to share this? Because there's a lesson here we're gonna extract. First lesson we extracted was don't specify the technology, specify in general words, whatever is needed to identify the person. Second is let's look at what happens when there is a constitutional ambiguity regarding uh, the use of fingerprints. So, so Mr. Madhewu um, challenged this, this, this act and, and the way I saw it reading the Supreme Court, there was, the, the, he challenged basically the right to life, the right to liberty, which were dismissed very easily by the Supreme Court because there was just no, no argument. But then he alleged um, constitutional violations of privacy. So my first question is to, to, um, to Madam, to Mrs. Madhub. Mrs. Madhub, the constitution in Mauritius does not offer a guarantee, an absolute guarantee to privacy. How do you read the constitution? Thank you, uh, Joseph. I'm very glad to participate in this webinar today. It's indeed an honor. And I would like to congratulate you as well on the well-organized um, webinar. Uh, so far, so good. Um, definitely. So we, our constitution after, let me just put you back in history about the constitution of Mauritius. As you know, it requires a free quarter majority to be able to amend the constitution, which is a nearly impossible task to speak in very uh, common language. So basically we have sections 3C, subsection mm -hmm. 3, subsection C, and section nine of the constitution which relate to the fundamental human right to privacy. Mm -hmm. And also very clearly elaborated in the constitution, there is no such absolute right in our constitution. There are always exceptions following each of the fundamental human right, including the right to privacy. But if you read the constitution, as you rightly pointed out, it relates to privacy of home mm -hmm. and property which is not related to privacy of an individual. Right. Already here, we have a major challenge in the constitution relating to the constitutionality of the right to privacy as in the identity ecosystem uh, concept. Um, so this is why this argument couldn't be brought forward in court and even before the private council, but uh, how we at the level, at the local level, how we tackle the constitutional lacuna, uh, let's put it this way, we adopted laws. Normally, mm -hmm. as you know, in any constitution, these are called, um, let's say, biblical rights. That is, you need a foundation to support a constitutional right, which is a law, which is a legal framework. And in our context, the right to privacy is betrayed by the Data Protection Act, by the Civil Code, Article 22, mm -hmm. and the value of the Civil Code in Mauritius, given uh, the number of years or centuries that it has existed in Mauritius is absolutely uh, treasurable, which means of great value. And Article 22 says, everybody has the right to respect for his private life. And we hold that in civil proceedings to be very, very much in, um, in perspective, but we have the Data Protection Act and which is supporting uh, the constitutional right to privacy. 
And I must say that this office exists uh, basically since 2009. And since that time up to now, we have been able to develop two legal frameworks. There was the Data Protection Act in 2004, which came operational in 2009, and then subsequently was amended again in uh, 2005, not amended, but revamped altogether, absolutely, mm -hmm. and 2017 and came into force on the 15th of January, 2018. Let right. me just pose a little bit here on the Data Protection Act. How actually... actually we, we want to get into that in detail. Right, hold on, right. hold on to that thought. But I want to I want to guide the discussion towards an, another lesson that I wanted to to sure. explore. Uh, but definitely, this is something we're going to get to it, and its relation to international standards, etc. Now, even though the constitutional right to privacy was not guaranteed, there was an Article Nine of the Constitution, basically. The idea that when somebody coerces you to give your fingerprint, it's tantamount to a search of your physical body. So the court, as I, as I understood it, ruled yes. correctly that asking for a fingerprint um, is, is tantamount to a search of, of your body, which is protected under, under Article 9. But under Article 9.2, basically, it's not an absolute right either, because public interest can allow for that. So, granted. There was no constitutional right uh, for, for absolute privacy. However, you have the right um, to not be searched unless you have the consent, except if there is uh, a public interest um, statement. Now, yes. the, the problem that happens is that <clears throat> basically um, the, the court justified the taking of fingerprints, right? Because they said in the public interest, you're justified to take the fingerprints. However, the court was not satisfied that you were not creating a bigger problem by taking fingerprints and storing fingerprints. So the idea is when we looked at the 2004 act, which you mentioned just now, uh, and you looked at the technology that was used to protect data, we would say, while the taking of fingerprints and the storage of fingerprints may not violate the, the constitutional right, you may lead um, to, to an exposure of the data, data security issues, uh, data protection issues, which can lead to a bigger problem. And therefore the court considered that a constitutional violation. Yes. So my question to you, to the, to the panel is, you have built a new Act, which is it's got encryption in it, it's got security in it, it's got all sorts of things. And today the technology exists with the ICT people around, etc. Do you think if we revisited that subject, the position of the court could be different, allowing you to retain fingerprints? And I'll, I'll ask this for, for all three panelists. Okay. May may I or will other people okay, thank it's, you. It's okay, it's okay after you. Thank you so much. Yes. So basically, um, I would seriously, if you ask me, Joseph, avoid the whole constitutional aspect relating to privacy. Let me explain to you why. Because we have strong legal frameworks. Data Protection Act, why should we resort to constitutional issues which are very confusing in nature 
to discuss such a very, let me explain to you why I'm telling this. You have the MNIC Act. In the MNIC Act, you have clause like, uh, it should be in respect with Data Protection Act, right? The very fact that we have this in law suffices to say that the data protection principles are being applied and the right to privacy is being protected irrespective of whether the constitution allows it and which sections of the constitution are being applied to. Why I'm saying this? Because we went through the Mahadeo case, we went to private council and we saw the, um, let's say the unclear uh, aspects of constitutional provisions coming into play. So we can actually not resort to the constitution in this particular scenario. Right. We, yes. Dridisha, uh, 100%, you, you had a path that was a perfect path because you built the law, you, you, you were informed by the constitution and this case to build the right laws. But we are looking at other African countries today who do not have the same frameworks that you have, uh, even India. The, the situation went to the Supreme Court. The constitutionality yes. of Adhar was being challenged. Right now, we have the same situation starting in Nigeria. We expect another situation similar in Jamaica. And, and just for our audience, the, the Privy Council is not a body in Mauritius. The Privy Council has the ability to pronounce um, certain legal um, analysis uh, that in the Commonwealth, in, in this bigger framework of law, I mean, it's, it's a court based on London. And so it's interesting what they had to say, which was in agreement with what the Supreme Court had to say, but they're being looked at by other countries to say, while we agree, you gotta go with the Data Protection Act, the legal challenges that are happening around the world against identity systems are coming out in a constitutional manner and those are leading to basically either paralyzing the project or slowing down uh, responsible progress and so yes I, I applaud Mauritius's act and we're going to come back to that in, in, in detail but there is a lesson that I'm trying to drive for other African countries that may be listening and will be listening on YouTube um, regarding how to deal with constitutional issues. Um, I so, but let me, let me just point out, um, William and, and Mr. Gopal, um, you take fingerprints, but you don't store them. Could you just please clarify what you do? Mr. Gopal, you're muted. We take fingerprints, but we don't store them. Yes. Okay. That's right. But that, doesn't that, uh, represent a, a challenge to the identity management. Uh, William, don't you need to deduplicate? How do you deduplicate records? Yes, sorry, Joseph, to come back to, the, to your question to Mr. Coppol. True, we do take fingerprints at the time of application, four, 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 plus, plus the fan, so right. 10. And then uh, when, when the code is being personalized, we delete the fingerprint. So it is not, it's not, it's not being, there is no, there is no backup. It's, it's going to stay in the, in the server, in the system. However, we only keep the minutia. The minutia, we, we, we keep it just to help us to, uh, you know, to prevent cases of usurpation of identity. If, sometime, if someone else comes, you know, 
try to usurpate the identity of, of another person. So the minutia, we can detect such, such a Okay, case. so you keep the minutiae in order to avoid deduplication of records. What, yes. format, and, sorry, what format do you sorry, keep excuse the minutiae? And the minutiae is kept in the chip of the national identity card, which is in the ah. possession of the citizen. Yeah. It's not in the possession of, of, of the government of, of, the, of the civil status division. You see, his information is with him, not in our possession. I understand. But what do you do in order to prevent the duplicate enrollment of people? Because if somebody enrolled five years ago and they come today, you don't have, you don't have any record of them. So no, how do you but, avoid the duplication? But we can detect because when you come, let's say if you lose your national identity card, there is a procedure. You have to restart anew. You will have to go to the police station for a police for a police a police memo. So you need you need something in writing the police. You need to bring your 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 birth certificate, uh, recent one, less than three months. If if it, if it is a if it's a lady, a marriage a marriage certificate, proof of address. But the mm. or, but the document which you uh, submitted to the national identity card uh, unit was scanned for the first time you came to us, it is on the computer system. So we can compare the documents submitted. We can, we have your photo, which is, which stays in the database. So we can see whether it's you who is coming again, or it is someone who's trying to impersonate you. So we have this information stored uh, in the MNIC system. Yeah, the fact that uh, you have an obligation to have a national identity card, and when you lose it or it is lost, you have an obligation to apply for a new one. There is no way out. Yes. Right. So that's the trick. The trick is basically the obligation to have it. And therefore, you don't need biometrics to deduplicate. That's the point. No, no. That's no. the point. Unfortunately, this is not going to be the experience in other countries because they rely on biometrics to do the deduplication. Yes. And in order for them to uh, ensure uniqueness uh, of the identity, which is for you, you can rely on the civil register even to just say administratively, these people have to have at 18 within six months, they have to have entered the national ID. So biometrics um, is not that important for you. It's not really you a problem not to have it. Uh, yes, not, uh, right. it's, not, it's not really a problem for us because of a well-organized system the, civil, right. uh, the, the, the CSD system and the, and the central population database contain uh, all the required information of the population, which you can check cross-check. Okay. Now, let me ask um, Drudisha. Drudisha, do you see a different treatment by the law, whether it's the constitution or whether the act, uh, be, um, between fingerprints and between photos? Or, or Mr. Gopal, whoever needs to answer that question. Okay. Isn't a better position? Go ahead. Yeah, Radisha. No, definitely I'm speaking only from a data protection perspective. And if you look at the Data Protection Act, biometric data is considered as sensitive data, which is given a higher status than any like normal data, like a photo or any other, you know, normal, ordinary uh, uh, categories of data. So obviously when we're talking of biometrics, the obligations that are imposed on the registrar of civil status and the other stakeholders are higher and they require more attention and uh, definitely more care with regard to the uh, application of the principles in the data protection act i will not under um, uh, state that all the provisions in the data protection act when breached actually amount to offenses and they are prosecutable 
uh, uh, by this office um, if there is any breach. So basically, um, definitely it's very serious. But do you consider for, for in today's environment and technological development, a facial photo is as good as a biometric in some context as fingerprints? I mean, you don't consider face as a biometric? Uh, definitely what we consider biometric data is facial recognition, iris, and all these, uh, you know, technologically applied uh, uh, solutions to uh, our, uh, our personality. And this is defined in the Data Protection Act. That is, uh, if you want me to give you the definition of biometric data, it says any personal data relating to the physical, physiological, or behavioral characteristics of an individual which allow his unique identification. In that case, definitely the fingerprints that are being stored or that are being used for the process of the smart ID is actually biometric data. And it falls within the definition in the DPA. But what about the face? Because now I'm confused. You, you are still st storing the face, but not storing the fingerprints. Exactly, we have two categories of information. The name, the photo are actually personal data in, in the DPA, whereas the fingerprint is biometric data and they have two different categories of treatment under the DPA. Definitely mm -hmm. these information, which we call basic information like the photo mm -hmm. and the name uh, are given uh, 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 protection, but the protection required for biometric data is actually higher than for these basic information. And that's why the Data Protection Act makes the distinction between personal data and special categories of data, which are actually sensitive data and includes um, biometric data, genetic data, et cetera, et cetera. But do you think this position will have to change? Because we are getting to a point where a facial image is all you need in order to identify somebody out of millions and millions of people. Um, in a way, uh, the, the fingerprint um, would not be really needed anymore. So where do you draw the line? Because if, if the question is to identify the person, facial recognition is, is as effective as fingerprints, especially as it advances in, in the technology. Do you Absolutely. think you would need to revise that position? In the context of a chip, or a smart ID, definitely the facial, facial recognition uh, techniques that are being used, they fall within the biometric data. Okay. But if we are looking just at a photograph, let's say in a population database, we're dealing with just a photograph and it's not a facial recognition technique used to identify the person, which is a big difference. I take your picture and that is fine. It's just right. a picture. But I use a technique to facially recognize you. That's a different uh, aspect that we have to look okay. into. And there's a big difference between the two. So that's- So that's just, just to explain to the audience, there is a difference between the photo of the face and the face print, which is, the, which is basically the template of the face that's extracted for the purpose of doing face recognition. And by the way, I'm insisting on this point because it, this is the same debate that, that everybody's having, the United States is having, everybody in the world that, yeah, you cannot prevent photos from being in databases, but you can prevent them from being in face recognition databases. So right. there's, a, there's a distinction. And, and I think there needs to be um, a clarification um, regarding that, that I think at some point, 
the law might have to be sort of amended slightly to make that clarification because it, it's at a time when face recognition, uh, for example, the BIPA law in, in Illinois, the BIPA law in Illinois was interpreted early on wrong by, by lawyers representing big companies that it does not apply because it, otherwise we would not be able to store images of faces. But the, the courts, the, the circuit courts have basically said no, because these images could be used uh, to extract face and that's actually the product, processed product that is becoming uh, controlled by, by the law. So, I, so we have to be careful about what, what we're covering. Okay. I'll just add one point in, to clarify this debate, just because we, our Data Protection Act, as you know, Joseph, is inspired from the EU General Data Protection Regulation and Convention 108. Why, right. and this has been very clearly debated before to actually make the distinction uh, clearer. So our Data Protection Act actually caters for biometric data, including facial recognition. There is no problem with the definition of biometric data for us to revisit the law because we just revisited this concept and mm -hmm. we have included facial recognition in the biometric data uh, definition. So uh, we are quite uh, comfortable with the law as it is right now. Okay, uh, let me go yeah. back to the fingerprint template and that's to, to Ayelo and Mr. Gopal. Um, since you're storing the template, you clearly must have decided on a format of the template. What is the format and how do you deal with interoperability? If in the future you change. Yeah, yeah, sorry, can you repeat again? Sorry, Joseph. Yeah, so, so um, the template, since you're not storing the image of the fingerprints, you're only storing the template. What format is the template stored in? Mm. But you know we are we are on the project of re revamping the the the, the system. Uh, okay. So the civil status uh, database, the central population uh, population database, tenders are already out. So uh, consultant will be advising us on, on the way ahead because the civil status database is back from two thousand and one, and it has to right. be re revisited. I think Mr. Gopal talked about the, the root no, campaign. In fact, yeah, I can yeah. say that template is, does not fully depends on us. It depends on technology, advancement in technology, and uh, what are we going to get as new infrastructure. We are, in fact, revamping the, the whole system. And by 2023, uh, we are supposed to have a new system with a new template with added security features, features and yes. with added uh, uh, programs on them. Okay, so basically um, you will end up um, using maybe standards-based templates, so it's interoperable, so you don't rely, rely on a single vendor. Um, you, you may even consider doing match on card. Would you be interested in considering match on card so that you don't need the template to move out of the card, it just does, or has there been no decision yet in terms of uh, that architecture? We are, we are not yet decided on the architecture. We need to have wide consultation with all our stakeholders first. And right. this is being carried out by uh, Mr. Hawabai at technical yes. level. Yes. Following this, we need to have, we need to take a policy decision by government need to take a policy decision. And then it is only then that we can, we can decide on, the, on, on what we, we, really, yeah. we really need for the country. So, so today the, the minutia on the card is not yet used. It's not yet used to conduct transactions, but in the future, you would need to use that minutia, right? 
Yes. There's a question in the audience, what is the minutia or template in the card used for? Yes, it, it, is, it, is, uh, uh, it is for the uh, Mauritius National uh, Identity Card unit itself. It is internal. Right. It is internal to it. used in the private sector. You see, there, there are projects coming, uh, you know, uh, for some card, you know, but the card to be used in, in the private sector for other purposes, for other services. But for the time being, it is being used only to process an application. There is okay. one more thing I wanted to add. You know, as of now, everyone having a above 18 or 18 need to have a national identity card. And if you don't have it, there is no transaction that you can do without your identity card. You can't right. do any banking transaction. You won't be able to have a good treatment at hospital level. You won't have social benefits. It is only on the presentation of the national identity card that you'll be able to to live properly. Right. So you use it. You use it as a essentially as a token to show uh, that. Yes. that Right, but you don't do match on card or you don't do um, electronic yet uh, matching. Not yet, not yet. We, are not coming yet. With it. we are coming with that. Yes, okay, so, so in your roadmap, you, you are going to address the issue of the template standard and you're going to address the issue of where the template matching for authentication will take place. And then maybe there will be an API that you will publish and, and support your other partners. I assume that is under the, the plan. Yes. Sure. Yeah, okay. okay, that sounds good. So basically, um, um, Dridisha, we're, we're going to come back to the, to, the, to the law and its relation with the European, because that's an interesting, an interesting element. But I want to um, wrap up in, in, in this area. Um, is there anything else you would like to say regarding the maturity of the legal framework covering the MNIS? Um, actually, sorry, address to me. Uh, to anybody, anybody on the panel, all, all three of you. Yes, yes. maybe, uh, sorry. Now, you yes. Know, our legal framework is not a static one. This is a dynamic legal framework that we are having. And we try to adapt our legal framework with the need and the difficulties that people have. That's why almost every year, we try to amend the law. If I'm not mistaken, the Data Protection Act has also been, been, uh, been amended recently to adapt itself to the needs of the people. So what is more important to us is what the people need, the need of the people within okay. a proper legal framework. Yeah. Okay, so dynamic yeah. is very important. Don't expect the law to last 10 years. It most yeah. probably will evolve because the world is evolving. Mitt William? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, doctor. I wanted, to, I wanted to give the guarantee that in Mauritius itself, I'm talking about the civil status division. Uh, data you know, is very well protected in this country. Let's say, uh, the registrar of civil status is also the data controller. Once you give me your data, there is no way I can share your data uh, you know, without your consent, without the permission, the permission of the, of, of the data subject itself. Even within government sector, to be able to be connected with the information I will, which Mr. Abai will develop later on, uh, every government department or ministry has to be registered with the Office of Mrs. Matter, the Data Protection uh, Office. So without a certificate from the DPO's office, even if it is a public sector, a government organization, we are not going to give data, we do not share data. Just to give you how, how, how strict the, 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 law, the law is. Also, uh, regarding birth certificate, 
you can only apply for your birth certificate if you're civilly married, that of your spouse, for your children, ascendant and descendant. There's no way we're going to give you the civil extract of your brothers, sisters, cousin, auntie, etc. It's all being so well, so well locked in, in, a, in a legal framework okay. where data are very well protected. Okay, we're going to come back to the subject of data sharing because that's an important yeah. information yeah. highway. So hold on to that yeah. thought. Uh, sure, Dridisha, sure. did you want to wrap up on this yes, topic? Very quickly, I, I so much agree with what my other colleagues have just stated. And I can tell you that we work in very, very strict collaboration together. Mr. Ayelu can confirm that. We have so many issues that the Data Protection Office tackles, probably on a monthly basis, together with his office relating to data protection. And we have a very good collaboration. I can tell you that this is making data protection even stronger in Mauritius. Thank sure. you. Okay. Good. So before I move to the next module of the discussion, I want to sum up uh, some advice or lessons learned. Even though uh, we learned them from you, they are no longer applicable to you. So Mauritius has already gone beyond that, but they are applicable to others because they are still in the early stages where you were back in 2013, 2015. So our advice to the identity authorities who are developing ID systems that require biometrics um, I think you should uh, first start by examining, if, if you want to avoid a challenge in the Supreme Court, start by examining if your country has an absolute constitutional right to privacy or not. If it uh, understand that derogations allowed, under what circumstances are you allowed, or there's permissible in interference with that right. Document how the capture and retention of biometrics, including fingerprints, can support um, the argument that the, that, that the interference is allowed in a, in a democratic society, in the public interest. Um, document, for example, uh, how much identity fraud and, and duplicate applications are costing society in democratic process, in cost to management. Uh, how SIM cards have been linked to identity are leading, or not linked to identity are leading to crime, etc. It was interesting to read in the court documents that, that there was a documentation that there were 700 cases of fraud that were documented as a result of not having uh, controlled the enrollment through fingerprints or through other means. And so the court viewed that illegitimate reason to allow the derogation. Then uh, for African countries that are continuing on this journey, make sure that data protection regulations and cybersecurity measures are very strong. Encryption and anonymization, perhaps distributed uh, storage instead of central storage, so hackers cannot simply attack and, and, and steal everything. Uh, so you're not ending up creating a bigger problem for society in the case of a data breach, uh, that they would rob you of the permissibility of the storage. And then also consider, um, consider the scheme being voluntary. Uh, so there is no potential of saying that there's coercion involved. Therefore, people are giving their consent to provide that, that data. This is a delicate question, whether it should be voluntary or should be uh, a requirement. Countries have different laws. Some are making it like you, a requirement. Others are basically saying, we're, we're going to deliver services for you. So in order to to, to, to do that, for example, in Morocco, um, in order for you to receive services, you should register in the central um, national population register and, and, and that will give you social protection services, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, so 
your story and your, your constitutional analysis on, on biometrics is very useful. You've grown, outgrown it, but others are looking at it and to see how that would be impactful. Um, we're going to take a um, take a, a, a move move away from data protection for a second, and and then move to um, the description of the link with civil registration um, with William and Mr. Gopal. If you can explain to us identity right from the start, how does the civil registration uh, process work in 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 Mauritius, and also talking to us about the coverage and how you achieved it. Yes. Okay. Yeah, good. Uh, okay. One minute to start, Mr. Gopal. Yeah, go ahead. And then I'll okay. supplement if required. Yes. Uh, the coverage of the CRBS in Mauritius. Uh, well, I'm I'm very pleased uh, to to inform uh, to inform that in Mauritius we have a uh, hundred percent coverage of civil marriages and death registration, and for birth it is almost one hundred percent. For birth registration itself, uh, the applicant has to produce, when we take down a birth registration, the, uh, the parents coming to declare the birth of their child have to bring to us a, a, a very important document called the notification of birth, which is mm -hmm. being issued by the hospital or private clinics and signed by a medical practitioner, of course. And then we are going to take down the declaration of birth. Once it's being done, there is a unique uh, national identity number. Uh, and NIN that, that is that is generated, it is computer computer generated. So uh, as from birth, the child will have a national identity number, which he's going to use throughout throughout his life cycle. And coupled with that, uh, at the time of declaration, the parents has a, a, a cash a cash give voucher uh, for them to open a bank account for, for the child. You know, this is the government incentive, uh, maybe for parents who have more children and also to, to, for the child to learn what his saving is to have a bank account, you see? Right. And it can be viewed this way also. How, how significant is it? I mean, by the way, this is a lesson learned. I mean, we've seen in countries where you give people some reward, either to register the birth or to register the death, uh, people yeah. do register. So how significant is it? Is it something that's like a one week salary or is it the average person? How, how significant is it? Well, honestly, it's, honestly, it's, it's not, you know, it's not a, a big figure. It's, it's not like, like a one month salary. However, it's not only the cash gift voucher because the facilities that the mother, that the mother has in the hospital, you know, the, the health services, you know, when it goes to labor to get the child or everything is free of charge to so stay in hospital all, all you know, for the vaccine, all, uh, for the doctor, the gynecologist will see her, all the services is free. So the, these, <laughs> these, these services also help the mother and the child also to, uh, uh, to be born in very good uh, condition, you see, in, in safe, safe condition. And there are certain social security benefits that a single mother also do get with the children as well, up to, that, if I'm not correct. mistaken, age of 13. Social right. security benefits. Yes. Now, Mr. Gopal, how much do you think culture plays a role? Um, because it seems that your society has been well-organized administration. You've got a well-developed administrative uh, sector in the government and people have the habit of interacting with the administration. Um, how much do you think this is playing a role in the mind like people don't question again uh, one second that they need to register. 
I would say it's culture. I would say it's more education. We have an educated population, and that that what makes the difference. I think so. But it's basically, not, you're educating the public about the importance of being registered. Yes, and this includes civic education as well. Where, where does this education take place? Does it take place at the schools? Does it take place in, in public centers, in television? How do, you, how do you educate? Everywhere, from school, in public center, in hospitals, in social security offices, everywhere. And even at home with the parents. Because if you have educated parents, then it's become easier for the children to, to understand their civic obligation, their civic rights as well. Okay. Um, yes. Okay, I'd like, I'd like to actually see, we've, we've got somebody who wants to join the community voice. If it's a quick one, operator, could you bring that person on, uh, on the community voice before we move on to the next section? Um, and, and then I'd like to come back um, to Drudisha to talk a little bit about the new, the new law. Um, operator, is there, is there a... I see hands risen and uh, we're trying to bring them on board for the community voice. Um, so education is important. Um, you've, you've got basically a point of contact with the population. It's not a single um, channel. You've, you've got to use everything that's available to keep that being reinforced and the importance of registration. Okay, uh, as I don't see- I mean, sensitization. Sensitization. Okay, okay. Sensitization. Excellent. Okay, so very quickly, um, let's start with, um, I'm not sure if I'm spelling your, your pronouncing your name, Khadija Tu. Please unmute and, and ask your question quickly. Uh, unmute. Oh, oui. Okay, bonjour à tout le monde. Bonjour, bonjour. Patrick. Donc, je vois que l'humoriste a fait beaucoup de progrès en ce qui concerne l'identité et je le félicite pour cela. Mais j'aimerais um, bien... Okay. Khadija, on, on va avoir un interprète, comme ça, oui. vous pouvez parler, parler. lentement et oui. arrêter, comme ça, l'interprète va, va traduire en anglais, OK? D'accord. Donc, je voulais juste revenir sur le, euh, sur le secrétaire euh, au niveau du ministère de l'Intérieur. Je vois so que... Les... I... I just wanted to get back to the secretary uh, considering the Ministry of Interior. Je vois que l'état civil est directement lié au ministère de l'Intérieur et que c'est au niveau du ministère que toutes les questions de l'état civil sont prises en charge. Je voulais savoir uh, est-ce que... I can see that all the civil registry is uh, linked to the Ministry of Interior and uh, to the uh, inscription of uh, registration of people. Donc, je voulais savoir, est-ce que cela a toujours été comme ça ou bien c'est une évolution que l'île Maurice a eu à, à avoir? Has it always been like that or is that an evolution that the Mauritius had to have? Ah, la deuxième question, c'est par rapport au financement. Je vois qu'il y a beaucoup de financements qui sont prévus pour l'état civil. Est-ce que c'est des financements sur fonds propres ou bien c'est par rapport à des bailleurs de fonds? Um, the other question regards the financing and I would like to know if it's a, a public financing or a private financing. Et par rapport à l'évolution de la loi, je vois qu'il y a eu beaucoup d'amendements et d'évolution du cadre juridique. J'aimerais savoir quels, quels ont été les acteurs qui ont porté ce changement-là. 
also regarding the law, I can say that there were many amendments to the law. So which are the actors that actually have driven those changes? Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you for giving me an opportunity to speak. Yes, the civil status uh, division has always been under the aegis of the Prime Minister's office. As regards the budget, it's public funding. We don't have recourse to private fund at all for financing the project and uh, the, the capital and the recurrent budget of, uh, of the civil status division. So it's more public fund that we used. Now, regarding uh, uh, amendments to the law, we have a committee at our level. We use, we meet, we don't bring amendments to the law just like this. We bring amendment to the law after wide consultation and through experience gathered from the different sectors. For example, we liaise, we have to liaise with the state law office. We have wide consultation with the team of Mr. Ayelu. We had wide consultation, for example, with the financial intelligence unit, with the Bank of Mauritius, with uh, the uh, CIB, Central Informatics Bureau of Mr. Hawabai. It's after wide consultation with all the stakeholders that any amendment to the law is brought. And how we, we bring about the amendment, it's, it's not a, a straightforward process. Bringing amendment means that we need to go to cabinet first. We'll have to go to cabinet, and then the law is introduced in the National Assembly to be adopted. It is only when the law is passed and proclaimed that the amendment become coming to force. So it's not a straightforward process. There's a lot of discussion. Sometimes we propose amendments which are not accepted at highest level, at policy level. And most of the time, our amendments are, are, are passed, are agreed upon, because these are amendments which come through consensus. Mr. Gopal, following up on that question, um, who are the stakeholders that bring together oh, somebody needs to mute their, their uh, basically does civil society participate in the process of of bringing change uh, to, to laws they bring to your attention a certain um, need that's not being addressed by current laws how do you engage with the stakeholders in fact, uh, we engage through the citizens directly, through the office of Mr. Ayelu, through the yeah. MTCI, through the FIU. There is no engagement of NGOs as such, but we take into consideration what we read in the newspapers, what people say, and uh, information from, 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 from different stakeholders. Okay. We take into consideration public opinion before bringing any change. For example, recently we had a meeting with uh, the Chambre de Notaire, which has yeah. come up with a few proposals and we, which we are taking into consideration for future amendment to the law. Okay, so you do engage with uh, special interest groups or representatives yes. of civil society. Exactly, yes. okay. Okay, uh, William, you had something to say. Yes, just, just, to, just to add up to what uh, Mr. Gopal is, is rightly saying, uh, we amend the law, you know, on day-to-day -day experience, uh, complaint from members of the public, as Mr. Uh, Gopal uh, was saying. I give you just two examples. Someone queried me 
as to why did I give his civil extract, his birth certificate to an attorney uh, without his consent. Right. Attorney is a legal professional, they, they used to write, and then, uh, and then this question was very pertinent. And then we went to the state law office for advice, and it was recommended that in future that we need, uh, that, the, that the legal professional must uh, produce a written consent from the data, sub the data subject. So uh, consequently, we amended the law to, to bring uh, that provision. Another, another good example was uh, regarding act alleged. Normally, how it happens, uh, any, any person can come to the civil state offices, to the civil status office, to recognize a child, but without the consent of the other party, that right. was not good practice. And, and then we had complaints, so we amended the law, uh, which now, from now on, uh, to recognize a child, if a father comes to recognize his child, the consent of the biological mother has, uh, has, has to be obtained, you know? So as we move along, we complete experience, as Paul was saying, uh, so we have consultation with stakeholders if we want to amend the Civil Status Act, and this has a bearing uh, on, on the Health Act, so we need to talk to our, to our colleague from Ministry of Health just to clarify, thank right. you. So, so the laws, the laws are dynamic, as Mr. Gopal has said. Yes, and you need to continually yes. listen, listen yes. to the needs. Drudisha, um, so you know, I just want to, uh, to take a relay to what Mr. Ayelu has just said. These complaints came to the Data Protection Office, and then they were sent to the Registrar of Civil Status. And as you see, that collaboration here, and we inquired, and then actually the law was amended just to tell you how we work in Mauritius and how the results are actually very productive. And uh, there was no need to go for prosecution. We had a very good um, uh, collaboration and here we go. And the law was amended to cater for these problems. Excellent, excellent, thank you. Uh, Bernard Garcia, could you please introduce who you are and, and your participation question? Uh, thank you, Dr. Ratik. Um, thank you for introducing me with this event. Um, this is my first time joining here. Um, my question is, as I listened earlier about your um, uh, constitutional rights that you had mentioned before, that as long as the biometric is not violating or creating a big problem for the uh, uh, identity or privacy rights of individual. My question is, um, well, I, I, I congratulate the uh, First, I congratulate the Mauritius for their um, initiative for this kind of uh, protection of identity for your citizen. My question is, are you open to, or are you limited to this current modalities like fingerprint, um, facial recognition? Are you limited to those modalities or are you open to have a new uh, modalities that could help securing the identity of your citizen? I don't think there should be any. We open, we open, we listen to people whenever there is need to bring any change. If we see that it is justified and it is in the advantage of the citizen of Mauritius, I don't think there should, and if there is consensus, then policy decisions are taken and the necessary amendment are made. And, but be Bernard, yes, yeah, sorry, Mr. Gopal, but Bernard, as you've seen, I'm, I highlighted the fact that the law was not specific to technology. The acts are always done in a way that says any such thing that's needed to identify a person. And so it does cover any future 
technologies that might be, this is the wisdom of trying to be technology neutral in creating acts. Let the regulations specify, but the acts should not be dependent on any technology. Absolutely. So anyway, th Absolutely. thank you Bernard for that, that contribution. Um, yeah. I wanna continue uh, quickly. How about mobile plans, mobile ID? Any plans uh, for introducing mobile identity in Mauritius? Um, this is a good question. I think uh, Mr. Hawabai may have thrown this idea, but we are, we are uh, moving into IT technology very gradually. We don't want to rush into anything, but if the time comes to introduce mobile technology, we're going to introduce it. Okay. Our, so at the moment, they don't have mobile ID, but you might be looking to, to, to introduce it. But then, um, you know, uh, there was one point in time, if I can call it mobile ID, during the COVID confinement, where people used to move around using a mobile work access permit. The, the access permit were on the mobile, and this was screened okay. by the police to allow them to move. Most probably, Mr. Jawayev, would be able to give you some more insight on this. At okay, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. Uh, operator, could you bring Mr. Din, Dindoyal um, to, this, to the panel? Because we wanna talk about the digital identity which is coming from your unique ID number. We wanna understand what is the Mauritius unique ID number? Uh, how is it structured, et cetera? And I understand Mr. Din, Dindoyal is um, the expert that works with uh, Mr. Ayelu um, yes. in the prime minister's office. So Mauritius has a digital identity in the form of a unique identifier. So could you please explain how people are identified through a number? So um, before we begin, I'd like to thank uh, uh, Dr. Joseph and ID for Africa uh, for the opportunity. And um, a hello to everyone. It is, a, it is an honor to be among you today. And hopefully the discussion would inspire us all in our endeavor to transform our economy and ensure its prosperity. So uh, the journey of a unique identity uh, of a citizen was initiated by the Ministry of Social Security since uh, 1986 in Mauritius. So a 14 digit algorithm was designed and uh, citizens who had attained 18 years old were manually allocated ID number based on, on same. However, the ID card issued was not of a laminated, was of a laminated type with Polaroid photograph having no chip or safety features, therefore not digitalized. However, since 2001, a computerized civil registration system ensured that a citizen's data was, digitali was digitalized and had a unique identity number upon registration of each birth in Mauritius. Then since 2003, the responsibility to allocate a unique identity was entrusted on the civil status division when it was decided to tie the act of registration of birth of a Mauritian with a unique identification number made possible through a computerized registration system and stored on a central population database, whereby the latest update of a citizen is kept in order to facilitate sharing of data. So in 2013, a major shift happened. Uh, the Mauritius National Identity Scheme has enabled the country to be equipped with a comprehensive scheme 
as a complete solution for identity management. So the country was equipped with um, a Mauritius National Identity Card Unit and system, a certificate authority, a new central population database, a shared infrastructure network, and info highway hub. Mm -hmm. So this new ecosystem has enabled Mauritius to open the doorway to a purely digital identity and produce smart ID cards. Also, uh, it's noteworthy to, uh, to, to, to say that in 2013, uh, there was a data governance also, uh, and frameworks and processes were designed so that uh, uh, the country uh, was able to clean, to, to, to produce clean data for its citizens. Okay. So standards and format were defined. The sources from which we were going to uh, extract the information were defined. And uh, also uh, the definition of exceptions also were documented. Okay. So the key here is that the process is as important as the technology itself. So okay. SOP were defined. Steps were clearly broken down to manageable extent. And in the course of the ID card conversion exercise, we noted also that 90% of the people registered were handled using standard operating procedures. Only about 9.9% .9 were defined under exception handling and about 0.1% were defined under very exception handling. For example, impersonation cases or person uh, alive having death records. Right. So th these are the, uh, the statistics that we, we have. Now, now uh, th this is wonderful. I think understanding the process and its importance, but explain to us uh, the, the, the logic behind uh, attributing 14 digit, as you mentioned, 14 digit um, unique ID number for the citizens. Th this is an important question. And then I'll come back right. to Madhub and understand her view of that number. Okay. All right. So uh, as, as, as I said before, if we started, in, in 1986, okay? So the ID number uses an algorithm using 14 characters, okay? We started like this, and it was attributed based on the input of the following. So the surname of, of a child, the first character of the surname, the date of birth, the month of birth, the year of birth, and a civil status code, or the registration code where the birth is registered, and a polio number or serial number on the birth certificate, followed by a computer-generated uh, checksum. Checksum. So, so it's not a random it, number. It's not like in the no, no, you had to key in all the numbers. Right. Okay. okay. So uh, hold on, hold on to that thought, um, Mrs. Madhu. What does it bother you that it's not a random number? No, not at all. Actually, um, when you look at all this information that is required, we actually checked whether these informations were necessary for the purpose that is being carried out. And it was prior consultation with the data protection office that these information are justifiably required by the civil status for the production of the algorithms. And they were, I think, yes, they don't have to be random. Random uh, actually has an element of insecurity in it, uh, Joseph, that okay. we might encounter. So to avoid this problem, I would rather go for the solution that has been proposed right now. 
Okay, so even though I could read from the number some aspects of this person, like their date of birth and the first letter in their surname, that doesn't bother you that it discloses information? Not at all, because they're all public information, by the way. Date of birth, they're all public information in Mauritius and all public information, and there is no problem with that. It's already something that everybody knows. Okay. What is your date of birth? And so we have no issues on data protection. Okay, N now is this number, uh, William, coming back to you, is this number also used in other sectorial? I mean, is it recorded in your health records? Is it recorded in, in any other context or this number stays only within the civil status division? How wide is this number? Unmute, William. William, unmute. Yes, yes, yeah, sorry. Yes, uh, I'm back with you now. So I was saying this, this number, you carry, it, uh, you carry this number uh, since your birth, and, and this doesn't change. We have rules, we have the law where we can cancel uh, a national identity code, but this is not the issue tonight. This is a unique uh, number which will not change until there is need for it. And, and behind uh, at the virtue of the code, there is also a CCN number, code control number, which is also a reference. And this has helped us uh, a lot during the confinement period to, to, pay, uh, to pay, you know, to give assistance, financial assistance. We have the MRA providing this CCN okay. number. So, so it is universal, this number and forever. From birth to yes, death, sure. you will be using it. You open up a bank account, they will use that number. Yes, yes. You okay. go to school, your birth certificate, everywhere. You buy property, you know, every uh, business transaction is being used. Okay, okay. So let's, let's keep moving so we can get, get in the other members on the panel. Um, Mr. Dendrial, thank you so much for this perspective. Um, and I'd like, to, uh, I'd like to bring in the ICT ministry, um, Hawabai, Mr. Hawabai, um, to join the, the panel. Um, can you bring, hello, Good Hello. to see you again. Um, obviously, all of this, all of this cannot happen without um, a well-designed strategy on basically data storage, uh, security and sharing, and also the infrastructure to support all of this. What role does the ICT ministry play in this identity ecosystem? Right. Uh, thank you, um, Dr. Artik. I'd like, first of all, to, to thank Dr. Artik and also the ID for Africa team for organizing uh, this event, which uh, is very much an important event for us to share about the Mauritian experience. Um, yes, uh, the ID project that we have uh, been uh, doing at uh, the civil status office and the prime minister's office it relies a lot on the ICT infrastructure that we have in place. In fact, the Ministry of ICT is here to promote the development of ICT in Mauritius in terms of infrastructure, in terms of culture, uh, in terms of education, and, uh, so, and in terms also of securing uh, data and all with cybersecurity. So Mauritius is a country today that has uh, fiber uh, to the home. Uh, we are fully covered with fiber to the home. It is. 100% coverage uh, over the island. And we are uh, connected uh, to the world also with uh, uh, two uh, submarine cables, so a third one is coming. So the infrastructure part is already there. And then the Ministry of ICT through uh, the services of uh, the Central Informatics Bureau, which is the CIB, 
which is the project management arm of uh, government, comes in to conceive the project and to help and, and bring uh, to fruition the project and all. So this is the, the facility that we, we give to, to all ministries and departments. And obviously, we have assisted the, the NCB. But I'd like also to add that as part of the infrastructure, government uh, has set up a data center. So yes. we have our own data center, the government data center, which is the what we call here the government online center. So it is that infrastructure that is very secure, has the resources in terms of human resources, in terms of equipment, in terms of technology, to manage and to provide services to everybody. We provide services to the Ministry of the Department's Office. We also host systems for uh, the Treasury, the Treasury Accounting System, for uh, education, for sectors, uh, government sectors. We provide that service and uh, it is through all this that we are able to service uh, the Department's Office. So lesson learned, I mean, you, you recommend that the government national identity data and the civil register data be secured centrally by uh, an ICT ministry data center so that you leverage synergies among different, um, different uh, sectors. Um, sure, and definitely. Uh, we would recommend going that road because what happens is that uh, there is here these dedicated ICT resources Right. Uh, professional resources that can support uh, the, the the system and the uh, yeah. Excellent. Okay, so just just so we can quickly pick up speed, um, what do you think about PKI and digital signatures, and where do they play in in your infrastructure? And this, William and uh, Rajneesh, you can both contribute to that. So, where do you see PKI going? Some people in Africa are saying this is too complicated. Uh, we don't need it. We can use online verification directly. So for security, we could just put the information on a piece of paper and then we go online since you're connected fiber to the home. Um, so is there a PKI in your future? Definitely. In fact, uh, as uh, Mr. Ayelu and Mr. Gopal were saying, uh, the data that is on the card uh, is digitally signed. In fact, they are, have been signed by a CA, a certification authority, within the MNIS project. And uh, this is part of uh, the exercise. So why we have introduced the CA is to give trust. Because the, the important thing is not just capturing data. The important thing is not just putting the data on the card. But it is also to give trust to the people who are holding the card that they can transact with it, because this data comes directly from the civil status of it. Does not been tampered. It is not something that people have made the fake data. So you can trust the whole system and trust the whole infrastructure uh, for which we are giving the service. But in the future, if you see online authentication taking place, do you think the PKI importance becomes less? For example, India maybe going down the path of, of live authentication instead of using a PKI, which secures the card or secures the transaction? Uh, in fact, there will be a mix because uh, Mauritius also, we are going on the live in, uh, authentication. In fact, we already have the MOPAS, which is the national authentication framework. So when you want to transact with government since uh, December last, now you have uh, your identity being secured uh, with uh, two-factor authentication, one-factor authentication through the NAF. 
But here, the uh, digital signature comes, digital certificate comes to give uh, non-repudiation because this is the most important. So the, the, so the authentication is important, but we also need to confirm because what is important, you look at the data that is there, you will see that it has been signed by the civil status office. So this is important, it's the organization and that can only be given through uh, a, a CA. So there is room for both uh, technologies, both initiatives to, to thrive, but we need to see how we balance both and give a better service to our citizens. Okay, um, just a quick question before we go into banking and finance. What, what are uh, your views as a ministry um, to, for technology basically on open source and open APIs and what initiatives in those regards exist in Mauritius? Uh, we believe strongly in open source and okay. uh, we are promoting open source. If you look at all the solutions that we are uh, procuring in government, you will see they're very open and we, uh, we would prefer to have open source because it is a community uh, supported solutions and it allows us to also reduce costs, which is an also an important thing. And uh, to have a variety of solutions and to not to vendor locked also. Uh, and also it is part of the policy of government to go for open source. For open API, uh, we are now taking the road of open API through, in fact, the info highway has come in as a data sharing platform. And we have seen that there are certain data like uh, business data, right? corporate business registration data that could be introduced and made available for businesses, companies to integrate straight within their solutions without coming to our platforms. And uh, OpenAPI is something that we are trying. And in fact, we should be launching very soon a, a first set of APIs, open APIs that will be open for people to, to exploit. Excellent. Now, speaking of the um, the bus, the info highway, um, who manages that, and and who can access access it, and uh, what what does it serve when it comes to the civil status division of the PMO's office? Right. The uh, info highway, which is the data sharing platform, is managed by our ministry. So our ministry manages it. Um, we have a governance body, however. So that we do not, we hold the keys to the system, but we have a governance body who decides when we can share data and how we share data. What is important is that any ministry or department wants to share data with another ministry or department, they have to sign a, a, an application form, an agreement for sharing of data. And this is why Mr. Ayelu would mention about it, where he referred to that uh, any ministry wants to get the data from the civil status office, they have to go through that uh, form. So they have to, to fill in. And they have also to have uh, the certificate from Data Protection Office to say, to say that they have uh, they comply with the Data Protection Act. Secondly, once the form has been obtained, the governance body where uh, we examine it together with Civil Status Office, Data Protection Office, the State Law uh, Office, the Ministry of Finance, the Economic Development Board. So all of us, a multi-stakeholder, will look at it and we see whether there is justification to give access. Mm -hmm. If there right. is, it is within the law, we give access. Now, last question that you mentioned is also about what data we share. Within the Civil Status Act, there is a provision, uh, if I recall, uh, 8C or 8B, uh, correct me, Mr. Ayelu, uh, where it says there are certain fields, like the first name, the surname, name at birth, uh, the gender, the date of birth, date of death, uh, the photograph now also. These are the data that you can share that can be accessible from 
the uh, civil status system, uh, which is under the uh, control of uh, Mr. Ailu and the Red Straw. And Mr. Ailu has the power also uh, to give upon the very uh, strict uh, requirements uh, any other fields that he feels that are required for doing business at uh, that uh, institution, which is the public right. institution. So, Good. Uh, William, um, how many partner um, uh, agencies or organizations are accessing your civil data under this strict framework? Yes, we have currently uh, 40, 41 uh, organizations, ministries, departments, and I must say that we are the champion yeah, in Mauritius. Uh, most most, uh, most institutions, you know, they're all connected because they all need civil status uh, information uh, data. So, and it's real time. It's real-time data. Is it real-time, William? Yes. 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 It is. Okay. And uh, we have. Yes. And we have. I'm also told uh, that we have uh, seven. Uh, I speak under the correction of Mr. Wabai. Uh, Seventy-five e-services uh, nationwide. We have five hundred and twenty-three e-services and, and 67 subscribers. So, okay. and allow me to add that uh, the info highway started uh, a few years ago on a pilot project. Uh, with CSD being the backbone and the Ministry of Social Security. It was announced by the Honorable Prime Minister and then has uh, stood the test of time and it's doing very well. Uh, we've got the price, you know, international level also. It is working, uh, doing very well. Excellent. Excellent. So, so basically, you would say the cloud is, is playing an important role, secure cloud is playing an important role in helping the government of Mauritius conduct its business when, and, and serving its citizens. Exactly. Yes. The, Correct. Yeah, uh, if I can just come in. Uh, with the data center that we have, we are, have uh, set up a government cloud and this is the infrastructure we're serving ministries and departments across uh, Mauritius. Okay, uh, any, any advice, last minute advice before we let you go, um, Rajneesh? Um, in IT, what do you recommend to governments to watch out for? What mistakes they shouldn't make? What things they should look out for? I think uh, one, uh, one of the success stories in Mauritius also is that the fact that we are all connected. Yeah? We have a, a secure network. So all ministries and departments, we have 200 sites today that are securely connected with us. So that allows us then from the data center to serve everybody and uh, then it's secured. Uh, same have, standard. And then same standard and we can then have, and also then we have cybersecurity standards also. We can implement ISMS also and all and, and provide the service to everybody. Plus have a data sharing platform that gives value to what you have, uh, everybody has. Across. Excellent, excellent. Okay, so main, uniformize, give everybody access, give them the ability to talk to each other and give them the security that they need to feel confident that their business data is not going to be exposed. Um, and, and now you have basically an ecosystem of data sharing um, governed by a board um, and, and supported by the right measures of security across all the agencies. Um, Mr. Haubai, thank you very much. We wish we could spend more time with you, but um, we're gonna move to the, to the banking now. Um, and the first question for Mr. Hitu, um, what are, in your opinion, the major challenges that you face um, in the finance and banking sector in Mauritius, and how does identity play a role in addressing those challenges? Thank you, Dr. Joseph. Uh, thank you also for giving me this opportunity. 
to share with you some of, of our experience. I think uh, in terms of the fact that we have the ID, it plays a crucial role as an enabler for financial inclusion. So basically, for example, if you want to uh, open a bank account, you just need the, the, your, your ID and a proof of residence. So once you have all, you have this information and most of our people do have an ID, a unique ID, so it's very, very uh, easy for them to get access to the financial services that are being provided by different institutions. So you mentioned proof of residence. Um, recent studies have indicated that proof of residence in Africa was a, was a barrier towards financial inclusion. Um, do you still insist on the need for an address when you open up a bank account or can you accept uh, a mobile number? No, um, uh, I think in Mauritius it's not a major issue uh, because uh, everyone uh, either they have a you, the profile address is mainly a utility bill, utility it could bill. be in electricity or water or anything like that. So this is quite easily available, and everyone do have uh, at least one of these. Or oh, it could be a telephone bill also. Okay. So so it's not a barrier. This regulation is not a barrier to financial inclusion. No, um, no. Do you have any statistics about um, financial inclusion participation, women, um, relative men? How do you see your strategy of, of empowering women to have bank accounts and, and also the poor having bank accounts, even though the commercial banks, sometimes they don't want them? Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, let me give you some, some figures. These are some figures. Uh, okay following, uh, I think this back to 2017, but uh, more or less, I think from there, we have made a lot of progress. Uh, so around 90% of the population, age 15 and above, do have an account with a bank or a financial institution. 90%? 90%, yeah. So we are one of, among the few countries with the highest proportion of formerly bank adults globally. Okay. And when you look at the distribution in terms of gender, in terms of income, income level, and in terms of educational attainment, there is no major disparity. There's no disparity just, among the genders. No, no. Just to, to give you some figures, uh, among the, more, the male population, around 93% of male do have an account and among female it is around 87 percent so it's not quite far and not over time, this gap has been narrowing over time mm -hmm. now in terms of income distribution we have a bracket say the 40 percent of the of the of those who are found in the bottom end so more than 85 percent of these people do have a formal account. Okay. And for those in the upper 60% uh, category, more than 90% of them do have an account. So here also you can see income is not a barrier. Everyone has access, everyone do take uh, advantage of the services. In terms of education also I have some figures. So mm. those who have completed their primary education or they have a lower education than the primary. 
So around 90% of these people, they uh, have, they already have a, an account. Okay. And it's higher uh, for those who have a secondary education. So I don't think education is, is, is a barrier also. Okay. One, one last question very quickly, since we want to keep going. Um, have you digitized all payments like G2P, government to person payments? And where are you in that project? How important is mobile payment or electronic payment uh, for the no. government of Mauritius? No, I think we, we, made, we made a lot of progress recently. For example, uh, you see, uh, for, the, uh, for the tax returns, all your tax returns are being done. Now it's 100% should be done electronically. Your payments should be done uh, through uh, the internet banking or other facilities. You have private uh, bank, banking, bank, 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 banks are providing services. You have one, I can just cite one. There's one juice by a major bank, which through it, you can make your payments for the, uh, for, 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 for what you do. And also government, whenever the Mauritius Revenue Authority has to refund to the individuals. This is also done electronically and without uh, much delay. What about payment of salaries from like civil servant salaries, etc.? These are all done electronically. They are transferred directly to the accounts right. of, of and, the individuals. And during the COVID crisis, was there any social protection payment that was done to people? Yes, there was. There was a wage assistance scheme. And the self-employed assistance scheme, two schemes, one for those employed and one for the self-employed. And right. these were also done by the Mauritius Revenue Authority through the network, and it was done electronically. Okay. So basically, you do have the, the G2P platform that you can use for any application that you need. Excellent. Yes. Very, very nice. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Hitu. We would have loved to stay more with you on this topic. But we've got uh, Dr. Sharmila Valayadon, who is from the Ministry of Health with us. Um, Dr. Valayadon, thank you so much for joining us. I know you've been dealing with the COVID situation. Uh, so maybe we can start uh, with the, um, the position of how identity has played a role in your efforts regarding the containment of COVID and the management of the COVID. Welcome. Hi, hello to everyone. So thank you again for for Africa for inviting me in. So let me share about what happened, our experience with COVID-19. I'll start a bit with the statistics. So we have actually in Mauritius like 595 confirmed cases, active case of 13. Well, in Mauritius, the idea, as I told you, in the COVID-19 containment is that here, as everyone has said, the ID is always, it has to be used at any point of time when you attend at hospital. So it starts back at when the first cases of COVID-19 was, was known and Mauritius went into um, confinement. Then we started the hotline, but there, however, however, we didn't use the ID because, because we were in confinement and people could not go out. So we had to use the hotline to as a mean of communication between the doctors and the, the, the population. Eventually, we get the, we go have the fever clinic at five, we have five regional hospitals right now in Mauritius. And 
Each time you go to the five regional hospitals, the fever clinics, as we call them, it's a screening system. That's why it's very, very important. So anyone who has symptoms or think they have been in contact with the positive can go there. So there you have to produce your ID. And with the names and IDs, these all got processed to the records so that we can know exactly who, where, and who got the, who has the COVID-19 infection. So that's how a bit of, how the ID helps out. And uh, mostly, you know, how the, the, the COVID-19 uh, control was done mainly for training, if I can say so. There's mm -hmm. mainly training of the hotel people, mainly the, uh, the personal working at the hospital. It's more about how to control the, uh, the infection, the infection prevention control. And uh, that's it a bit more that there was the training at the Hotel Don afterwards after the 1st of October when the borders were opened. I mean, we can't say open because it was partially open because still we did the PCR test. But as you can say, the PCR test, when we are taking the, the, the people are coming in the quarantines, we get the passport number if they're foreigners and if our motions, the ID, after mm. which the PCR test on the day zero, seven and 14 in the quarantine center. Okay. And, and so basically ID is the, is the core. You cannot process anybody without a unique ID number that you're tracing and tracking. Um, and was there any uh, trace and track applications with somebody has been infected? How do you end up um, uh, tracking whoever this person was in touch with in order to quarantine them? Yeah, in fact, we were very lucky in Mauritius. We, 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 uh, we thought fast so that as the first cases were there, there were like five cases. As they started, we did a contact tracing. The contact tracing, they are, they are a group that, as I told you, it was like a web. We were doctors okay. at the hotline. Then there were swabbers. As soon as people were phoning us about, you know, suspected case, we phoned the swabbers to do just as quick as possible the swabbing. First, we were doing the throat swab. Now, even now, we have gone to the nasal swab because of the increased effectivity. So that's it. That's how it was very quick, very quick. And the quarantine also helped out. So anyone who was coming from abroad, they had to do the fourteen days of quarantine. Okay. So that's the incubation period of fourteen days. Okay. So this is this is a, ma a major operation, and hopefully, we'll keep Mauritius. Uh, safe and free of, of any any COVID in the future. Uh, we're going to continue. Thank you so much, Doctor. Appreciate your perspective. I'm going to continue with the discussion um, with the superintendent of the of the, of the police um, because you have a very ambitious project. Um, I think it's called Safe City. Could you please describe describe what that uh, what that project is about? And I'd like to talk to um, Drudisha about how she sees the data protection and privacy aspect of such a, an important project. Good evening, doctor. Good evening, everybody. Thank you for giving me this opportunity to give a brief overview of the Safe City project. Uh, as you must be aware, the Mauritius Police Force is a law enforcement agency of the island of Mauritius. And uh, we, are, we are here to, we are bound by the law to give uh, security and protection to, the, to all our citizens. Mm. And uh, we are governed by the Police Act 1974, 
which uh, stipulates that we, we are there to prevent and detect offenses. The first role of the police is to prevent and detect offenses. So in 2009, we had introduced the CCTV system based on the statistics that certain regions had a lot of crimes. The crime rate were quite high. So with the introduction of the CCTV surveillance system in this region, we noticed that uh, the crime rate had uh, completely reduced. And uh, this gave the idea of introducing better uh, technological instrument and uh, better cameras, intelligent cameras. This is how the Safe City project came into line. And uh, we signed the contract in 2017. And this project, the Safe City project, is a, is a complete ecosystem where we have a lot of uh, systems included in one, in one project. Like we have the CCTV surveillance cameras, the video surveillance, we have the traffic surveillance, we have an emergency response management system, which is a 99 call where people are in distress, they can call us and uh, we can locate them. It's a, we have a system called the location-based system. We can locate from where the people in distress are calling us. And we have got uh, a main command center and regional uh, sub-command center from where we can monitor all these cameras that have been placed throughout the island. And do you plan on implementing face recognition uh, in, into these CCTV yeah, cameras? One of, the, one of the components of this uh, project is a uh, facial recognition, which is, uh, which is under implementation. We have not yet done the testing, but uh, just to add, uh, Mrs. Madhab is here. The project, uh, when we did the project, we have followed, uh, we have been in line with the Data Protection Act. So the Mauritius Police for the Data Protection Office has issued a code of practice in relation to this project where we follow all the guidelines so that uh, we don't uh, violate the rights of the public. Hold on to that thought. This is quite interesting. Tradisha, what does the code of practice do? What does it dictate? Yes. So. Uh... Joseph, this is a very important document, the Code of Practice, because it is binding on the Mauritius Police Force. It's so binding. Any infringement, it's binding. And any infringement of the Code of Practice is just like you're infringing a piece of law. There is mm. no distinction here. So this is the first important element that we should note with this Code of Practice. And the, let me put it this way, the beauty of this Code of Practice is that now it is the date is 30th of October, 2020, that it came um, into force. Yes, 30th of October, 2020. Um, and it has got many elements, like 10 pages in this document, where we range from all the obligations that are imposed on the Mauritius Police Force with regard to data protection safeguards and what are the responsibilities of all the officers involved in the process what security measures should be put into place, who are the players, who are the actual uh, targets, and basically everything about data protection is more or less covered in this code of practice. There have been certain sections of the DPA that have been exempted from application by the prime minister, which is his prerogative, and we respect that. But I must say the Data Protection Act as a whole finds its application in the Safe City Camera Project. 
Um, Can you share the document, Bridisha? Can you share the document? Is it public? It's available on our website, and I will definitely share this document uh, with ID4 Africa. And it's a, for me, it's a very far-reaching document with very big responsibilities on the Mauritius Police Force, and being issued by the Data Protection Office represents the regulator's responsibility as well. I think we would like to promote this document so that there's awareness of it because the issue is happening in anywhere in the world. Right now, CCTV cameras with face recognition are popping up everywhere in the world and people are looking for code of conduct, that code of practice that govern these that are consistent with um, mature data protection act. So if you can share it with us, and if anybody who's interested in it, contact ID for Africa, and we'll be happy to share it. But obviously you can also go directly uh, to the data protection office uh, in Mauritius website and download it from there. Um, this is definitely very, very positive development because we, we believe that responsible deployment of face recognition can build safety and security for the population instead of preventing them from benefiting from advances in technology for fear that it would uh, violate people's privacies. So, yeah. so this is a mature uh, approach for delivering the safety, but at the same time, the honest majority don't need to fear or worry about their privacy being invaded. So superintendent, that's a wonderful project, good luck. We would love to hear more about it in the future. Hopefully we'll bring you back and tell us about how face recognition is working for you. Um, so thank you so much. I wanna move on to Mr. Ramlal uh, from the Passport and Immigration uh, Office. Um, Mr. Ramlal, how do you uh, participate in the identity ecosystem? Um, you're producing a document, an important document which is the passport. In the immigration, clearly you have control of identity at the border. Describe how identity plays a role in your business practices in Mauritius. Okay, thank you, Doctor. Well, I'm very glad to have the opportunity to offer this, I think, the Passport Immigration Officer. Well, before answering to your question, the Passport Immigration Office is a branch of the Mauritius Police Force and works under the aegis of the Prime Minister's Office as well as the Commissioner of Police. The Passport Immigration Office is a sole authority in Mauritius, which is empowered to provide passport and immigration services. Okay. Uh, well, the serv uh, services provided by the Passport Immigration Office are the issuance of Mauritius passport, travel documents to citizens, issuance of visa to non-citizens, issuance of res residence permit, uh, occupation permit to eligible non-citizens who want to work, invest, or retired in Mauritius. And also we have the, the issuance of premium visa newly implemented to eligible non-citizens who intends to stay in Mauritius for a maximum period of one year as, as a tourist or, or professional willing to come with his or her family and carry out his business or work remotely from Mauritius. And uh, lastly, I can say controlling and regulating entry and exit at border control. Okay, well, one of the core services of the Passport Immigration Office is the issuance of Mauritius passport. Okay, the Mauritius passport uh, is governed by the by laws. Okay, I can say governed by laws. Uh, the Passport Immigration Officer may 
issue, renew or endorse a passport to any citizen or which would satisfies such conditions as may be prescribed by the law. I have just said the issuance of Mauritius passport is governed by the Passport Act. Here, the, the laws in Mauritius, Passport Act, Passport Regulations, Constitution of Mauritius, Mauritius Citizenship Act, and Civil Code of Mauritius, in addition, the Data Protection Act. Okay, but regarding the documents, the documents that are, that are required for the application of a Mauritius passport are already spelled out in the, in the law. For instance, so for the application of a Mauritius passport, the basic documents that we will need is a Mauritius birth, the birth certificate of the citizen. The citizen. We require the national identity card, Mauritius national identity card, and uh, related documents where applicable. I, I wish to add also a Mauritius passport is issued to citizens of Mauritius who are either by birth, the person having been born here in Mauritius, or by descent, or by naturalization or registration, or, or by adoption. Okay, so basically, uh, you you are a consumer of identity, but also you're a producer of identity as well. And yeah. in, if there are any um, issues of 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 um, investigation, like so if there's doubt about a, a case that William gets, Mr. Ayolo gets, I assume you participate in uh, an offering an opinion about the status of that case. Yes, of course. If, in case of any doubt, we have to uh, to confirm the authority concerned. For instance, the civil status yeah. office about the birth of the, of the person. If we mm. yes, yes, there is a communication between uh, passport immigration office and other authorities also. Right. So what I've heard throughout all the people who've just spoken is that, in fact, every single one of them mentioned the Data Protection Act. I mean, it sounds like. You know that that's become really, really a key, and that's a message that I keep everybody, I leave everybody with that that it, it, not only do you have to respect the law, but you have to respect the right law. And in a modern society where life is based on data, the Data Protection Act becomes a central core law that every practice, whether it's passport immigration or whether it's banking, whether it's health. All of it have to be respectful of that law. Um, I just want to let, let the public know there have been a lot of questions. We're going to take uh, bring them on. Uh, if you want to be on the on the community voices, we're extending this session as, as usual. Um, I want to go to elections, and then I want to come back to the full panel and, and be close through uh, some community voices that where people might want to express their opinions. I still have um, a segment that I want to conduct with Rudisha regarding the new uh, law and its relation with the European GDPR. Okay, um, uh, Mr. Ramla, thank you so much. Apologies for being short because we, we're short on time. Uh, but like I said, we hope to bring uh, more of what you're doing to the forefront in a future episode. Um, thank you. Mrs. Uh, Siwu from the Electoral Commission, thank you for being with us. Clearly, identity and unique identity plays a role in democracy. It's the foundation of democracy. So describe to us and unmute yourself and describe to us, please, how does the, the Mauritius identity practices for elect elections take place. Thank you, Dr. Attic, for this enriching session. Hello, everyone. Well, the MNIC, the Motion Identity Card, plays a pivotal role in the electoral process. 
Why so? Once a person, a citizen reaches the age of 18, that person is entitled to have a national identity card. This happens to be the same age for a person to be entitled to be registered to vote at an election. Unlike India, another Commonwealth jurisdiction, the Electoral Commission of India issue a voter identity card. But Mauritius, we rely and we make full use of the Mauritian identity card. Why so? Because it has all the features that we need of a person to appear on the register of electors. The right to vote is guaranteed under the constitution, also is provided for in the ICPR, that is the International Covenant for the Civil and Political Rights. Yet to be able to safeguard, to protect this very right to vote, we need some mechanism to make sure that the right person, the specific individual is given a ballot paper when they come to vote. And how so? We have provisions in our electoral laws, which cater that when a person comes to vote, that person must bring a proof, must produce a proof of identity to obtain a ballot paper. Now, amongst proof of identity, we have the MNIC, which is one of the main proof of identity, which is most popularly used by voters in Mauritius. Mm. With this, we have to be able to vote, that person must produce MNIC. Yet, before that, there is the registration of electors, which comes first. We use the MNIC to be able to register the person. That is, the person must produce the MNIC, wherein we have information such as basic information, like names, like uh, we have the gender of the person, the full family name, which I mean, and the gender, and we have the MNIC number and the date of birth of that person. We take these information to register the person. Of course, the address will be there. We ask the person for the address. And given that Mauritius does the house-to-house -house inquiry, which is a door-to-door -door inquiry, so we have the address. We are certain the address then and there. We take these informations and we register the person and we compile the register of electors. Having done so, this very register of electors is used now for the election process. Now, how do we use the MNIC again? When a person comes to the voting station, the polling station, voting center, however we call it, comes to cast his or her vote, that person must produce a proof of identity. Mostly, mm. they produce the MNIC. Well, they can produce the passport and the passport, but it is the MNIC is most uh, universally used in Mauritius. They produce the MNIC. Now, once they produce this document, the presiding officer has to verify whether the person presenting that said MNIC is verily the same person who is in front of him or her, asking for a ballot paper. And having verified this first step, now the person has to verify the information they are in, that is the name of the person, appearing on the NIC and appearing on the register of electors. The advantage of using the MNIC for registration process is that we get the accurate name of the person. That's the one of the advantage. Once they cross-verify this, they cross-verify the MNIC number, which is a unique number as it has been explained earlier in this session. We verify the date of birth. Date of birth can be identical for many people, but having the MNIC number in full is very yeah. So this is one of the advantages for us to eliminate double entry in the voters register. 
Why do you need a door-to-door process? Explain that. Some people are asking, what, what does it play in the electoral process, this door-to-door canvassing? Mauritius is, I think, one of the only countries in the African continent still doing the door-to-door process. Well, the door-to-door started right when we had the representation of the People Act dated nine, nine, one, um, 1958. The, the Act dates that far. The process, the, the morals, the tendency in Mauritius was that we used to visit people to verify where they live, to have the actual address. Mm. Asserting the very address of the person, where that person lives, and register all the members of the family then and there. The tendency is that uh, uh, people are, have got used to that. So we maintain, we are still maintaining. Maintain. Yet, but yet, yes. Hold, hold on one second to that thought, because in fact, you're capturing data that's quite useful uh, to create a national population register. I mean, William and, and Mr. Gopal, um, if you combined, because you have the unique ID number in both, if you combined in the civil status data and the electoral data, that address, you're going to have a national population register with the address verified by the door-to-door canvassing process. Is, is yeah. that integration, backward integration, where you took the electoral data back into your data being in, enriching and it's, it's being done or you have laws that prevent that? Well, yes, okay, yes. Mr. Gopal. Unmute, Mr. Gopal. No, there is no law preventing the use of electoral data. You can use it. I don't mm. know whether Mr. Ayelu can add on that. Mm. Yes, yes. Uh, can you hear me? Yes, yes, yes. Yes. Well, in fact, there is a, there is a close collaboration between uh, civil status division and the electoral commissioner, uh, commission office. We provide, we provide data, but in return, we do not take data from the Electoral Commission Office. Right. Uh, the, the only thing that maybe we can consider is to have recent address, because in many cases, citizens uh, making the national identity card, sometimes when they move to any other part of the country, they do not notify us, although it is mandatory, they have uh, right. the MNIC Act. Maybe on that score, if there is a collaboration uh, for us to update our, our database, the MNIC database, we can have recent address from the Electoral Commissioner. Uh, right, and there is value in that. I mean, there is value in that, assuming that Rudisha is not going to be upset that there is a violation of the act. Uh, no, not at all. <laughs> it's just an address, and I guess that, that also protects the citizen to have the, the, you know, the, the exact address which shows where he lives, and it's actually a protection. Why should we okay. go against it? Uh, Madam Siwu, maybe there's an opportunity for collaboration with Mr. Ayolo. That would yeah, be sure. wonderful after, after, uh, after this yeah, session. So okay. I think that in fact, we have discussed upon this, updating of data uh, on the CPD. And this is one possible avenue of collaboration with, uh, with the Electoral Commission Office. Excellent, excellent, very good, very good. Um, Madam Siu, if, if you have any, any re concluding remarks about the identity in the Electoral Commission, I know we're asking you to be rapid because we're running out of time, because I have one more subject I want to address with data protection, which is a, an important subject. So any, any closing remarks? 
Definitely. Thank you, Doctor. Uh, using the MNIC gives us lots of advantage, such as we, we happen to eliminate the double entry of voters on the register because we have a unique NIC. At the same time, we also happen to eliminate the issue of impersonation, which may have arise in previous elections before prior to introducing the MNIC. That is, people cannot come and impose themselves for someone else and vote right. in Europe of that person. So this is a great advantage that we have whilst we have since we have introduced the MNIC for the 2014 National Assembly elections. In as a concluding remark, I would say that MNIC has become a sine qua non in the voting process, whether it is in the registration process or whether it is for the voting process. And it has helped us immensely to clean our register and to produce a credible register of electors. Thank you. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you for, for that insight Inouye, onto your practices. Uh, we've got one person uh, from the Community Voices. Uh, Parmesh, could you please introduce yourself, say who you are with and where you're coming from? Yes. Good evening, everyone. And good evening, Dr. Atik, for this wonderful session. And good evening to my local PLC in Mauritius. And thank you all for all these clarifications. Well, I, uh, a senior solution architect from having an IT background and working in one of the major firms on the island, and we deal a lot with data. And actually, I'm also a data scientist and uh, working uh, locally here. Mm -hmm. It's a good initiative, and whatever the Data Protection Office has taken on board, it's a very good initiative. But still, uh, we have to be careful with the constitutional right of people. It's a primary predicament for, you know, for the local population. We have to be careful with this. And this is a right that we have, we have acquired, you know, of the independence and of the, it's a long history behind that. So to be, to cut short, it's just that everything is, everything is, 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 is um, very much appropriate what the government has put in place and what previous governments also have started, except that I could see that there is a, a the, the, the Lambda, the, the Lambda uh, Mauritian uh, doesn't find the, they don't, they don't really see the, 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 the criticality of that ID card. And, and, and the fact that they have a tendency to give it out. They have a tendency to share it. They have a tendency to give it to someone else. And, and you know, nowadays in technology, you, you, you already have a biometric photograph on that card. And I suppose that this has to be uh, taken into account by the authority and make sure that this biometric photo, I don't know whether there will be another issuance of another ID card on the island. I'm sure it will happen. And also the minutia on the chip, uh, it's also quite, I don't know how, uh, maybe, maybe if uh, Mr. Hawabai would, would be here, he, would, he could have confirmed this. The minutia on the chip, uh, whether it is traceable, people are asking questions because we talk to people, we talk, we talk to local population, we talk to clients, we talk to a lot of people around, whether this chip, because chip, you know, can be traceable, chip can be easily uh, located and through, you know, uh, RFID or NFC enabled technologies. So all these things, I think the, the Mauritius National ID should attend to these questions and clarify this to the local community. Maybe, you know, I don't know. They are doing a good work by, 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 by 
giving, bringing awareness, but awareness mostly on the general terms of the importance of the ID. Yes, I think we want need to go more into technical side. More technical. Okay, thank you, Parmesh. Um, anybody care to, to uh, respond to Parmesh's point, which is valid everywhere in the world? I mean, this is a, an important issue that we keep all dealing with. Um, anybody? I, uh, can I, can I, Dr. Atik? Uh, can I Mr. Mr. Gopal, can you un unmute? Well, uh, welcome the suggestion of Mr. Pahane. Now, I've taken note of his suggestion. We're going to discuss on that. All suggestions are welcome, and wherever it is possible, we are going to take action. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. Joseph, yes, Dradisha, yes. Yeah, please pass on to Mr. Hawabai because this issue has been raised before and we yes. have tackled this issue. So it's not mm. a new issue. And I guess Mr. Mr. Hawabai, uh, operator, bring Mr. Hawabai to the, to the panel. Um, yeah, Mr. Hawabai, yeah. please get on okay. the panel. Yeah. Uh, got my video. Right. Uh, thank you, Mr. Dr. Atik and uh, Mr. Parmesh. Uh, well, the ID card does not have anything for traceability. There is nothing that you can use to be able to do, uh, to try to find out whether uh, there is GPS on it or whether you can locate uh, anybody. So the card has data too, and the data is secured because it is also under password. It's very much an encrypted data also, and it's protected. So you can't just read it even for IC or whatever, because people have tried, and uh, this is not possible, right? So uh, we do not have, and the photograph is just a photograph. We have not done any measurements. If you want to do facial recognition, you need to do a lot of uh, measurements on it. This is not part of the solution that we have. So rest assured, our data is just plain data that we have from the database, this is what is stored in the, in the card. And the minutia is not accessible because if you want to read it also, you need an SDK, you need a card reader. And this is the only place you can have it is only at the uh, ID card centers. Oh, on the card. Right. Okay, so excellent. Excellent, excellent. Uh, okay, operator, bring the rest of the of the board back for a, for a goodbye uh, closing, but um, ju just to say goodbye to the to the um, to the audience. But I'd like to, while we're bringing that, I'd like to engage with Radisha a little bit more because the data, the, the personal data protection, as we've seen today, plays a central role in every aspect of Mauritius's journey toward digital development and towards um, you know, building, building a, 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 the digital Mauritius 2030. Now, um, Drudisha, why the need for new legislation on data protection? I mean, why, why you, you had a good one before and, and now um, after GDPR came out, uh, you found yourself in a position where you wanted to update the data protection law. Why, why did you need to do that? Yes, uh, Joseph, I think uh, as you have seen that we are quite futuristic in our approaches, we've been very innovative and we wanted to be innovative as well in the data protection arena. And not only innovative, but very ambitious as well, because if you look at the general data protection regulation, it came into force in May, 2018. And we adopted uh, a legislation which came into force in January, 2018, that is some months before the EU GDPR actually came into force. Why we did it that way, and actually we've been successful in getting it 
to cabinet on a racing time, uh, 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 on a race, and we actually achieved it because actually we are the first country in the world who has a data protection legislation which has aligned itself with the GDPR. Then came the UK sometime after. So that credit goes to Mauritius. It goes to our office here who has made all the efforts possible to be able to win a race. You might right. say it's competition, but actually we were, we were very proud of this achievement. We, we are actually proud of you for having been the first African country and first, African, first country in the world. But why is GDPR relevant for Mauritius? I get that question a lot by African countries to say Europe is Europe. Why should we use GDPR as a standard for us? Could you please explain that? Yes, definitely. Why is the EU GDPR right now the standard? Why is it across the world the standard? Because of its extraterritoriality application. That right. is, EU data being resided anywhere in the world is a threat for the country where it is actually residing because it involves that administrative sanctioning under the GDPR, which relates with 2% extending to 4% of a turnover of that organization as administrative fine is actually what an organization has to think when he is actually treating, collecting, processing EU personal information that is about EU citizens. So we were legitimately very scared and we wanted to align our data protection framework with the GDPR to ensure that our businesses in Mauritius are protected. And that has been a very big guarantee that we could give to our, our investors and also the citizens involved in relation to data protection principles that we are ahead and we're giving them maximum protection in terms of data protection. Let me ask you a delicate question, uh, but it's an important question because everybody has to go through it. I imagine you're working on the question of adequacy right now. Um, yes. uh, where are you in that process? How confident are you? Perhaps you can explain to the audience yes. what adequacy means right. so that, um, and explain wh when do you think you can achieve it? Okay. So basically, yes, when we actually amended the Data Protection Act to align it with EU GDPR, our main concern has been the EU adequacy. Why is the EU adequacy so important for a country, not only Mauritius, is that you can actually make the, the safe flow of, of data transfer between Mauritius and Europe uh, a really flexible uh, operation, which is not the case right now, because mm -hmm. Mauritius is not on the safe list, uh, as you know, with regard yep. to EU adequacy. It's not only Mauritius, but if you look at the list, there are actually very uh, scarcely countries who are actually EU uh, safe listed as adequate countries. So our main concern in Mauritius has been that we want to be on the safe list. We don't want uh, our businesses to suffer. And that's why we're moving in the EU adequacy project. And I can tell you, we have already launched consultancy uh, um, uh, 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 procurement exercise to uh, actually nominate a consultant who will make a report an assessment on the, uh, the Data Protection Act in Mauritius, which will be sent to the EU for uh, his validation and to see whether they accept it or not. But if you look at the Data Protection Act, we have taken every precaution to ensure that all the essential principles in the GDPR are reflected in the Data Protection Act here. So basically I can say we stand 
a 95% chance of getting EU adequacy subject to whatever they will, they will also require us to do. And we are open to do that. This is really, really an important project. We wish you luck in it. The European Data Protection Board uh, last week has issued a ruling that gave me some pause and gave me some, some concern about African countries because basically they, 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 they said that the commission adequacy decision should contain any findings regarding the existence of rules adopted in this country intended to limit any interference with the fundamental rights of a person whose data is transferred from the European Union to third country. So in a way they may interpret of the constitution as not giving enough absolute rights and they may object just like they would object to many other countries. Uh, I think this is not a problem for Mauritius. It's gonna be a problem for everybody and it's gonna be a problem for Europe as well. Yes, I, I do appreciate the point, the constitutional aspect, but uh, Joseph, we have studied so much adequacy elements. I can tell you that convention 108 is actually right. a very good starting point that we can use um, to defeat also certain of these concerns. Because as you know, Mauritius is the first African country who has ratified Convention 108 since October 2016. Again, the first African country who has ratified Convention 108 plus in September 2020. I don't see any, sorry to say that with bluntness, any other African country who has done so much of effort to be right. able to ensure that we are actually protecting people's data here and we mean business. If you look at the data protection framework, it's criminal in nature. It's right. even more serious ascensioning right. here in Mauritius than administrative fines that are being uh, provided under the GDPR. So right. we prosecute people here and it's very serious. But to say that the constitution is actually, um, let's say a ban to all the other considerations regarding adequacy, that would be a fallacy. Why? Mm. Because so many constitutions in the world, including European constitutions, right. do not have a right to privacy. And yet, right. in part, so we can use that argument as well to say, how can you accept? We also have ratified the convention. We also mm. aiming in that direction. So for me personally, my very personal opinion, we can fight that back that argument. And, and, and we'll be watching because that's an important topic, not just for you, Mauritius, but for the rest of Africa. Uh, I, unfortunately, we've reached a point yes. where even our extended time has, has run out. Um, if there is one message that we are, we're gonna leave our audience with, our attendees with, is the fact that legal frameworks for identity systems matter. Data protection is gonna become a paramount consideration don't take it as a second afterthought. Take it as something that's very, very primary. Before you even launch your ID system, you got to be thinking about data protection and building the trust of the population. Because if they see, if they see you serious about how you treat their data, you are going to gain their trust and therefore build a successful ID system. Um, Mr. Um, Gopal, please accept uh, our sincere thank you on behalf of ID for Africa movement to your government. And please um, uh, the on, uh, pass my sincere thank you to the Honorable Prime Minister. And of course, I'd like to thank all of your team members, all of the panelists who've contributed today. Uh, two and a half hours have passed very quickly. Um, and that just shows that it, it's not the size of the country that matters. In fact, it is how developed and how sophisticated uh, you have developed your ecosystem. 
And so we're proud to have featured you in this episode. We've learned a lot of lessons and I'm sure this record on, on YouTube will be viewed multiple times by people who are looking for nuggets of wisdom. So thank you again. And um, if, if, you, if you would like to say any closing remarks, uh, the floor is yours. Uh, let me, uh, in the name of, of the government of Mauritius and uh, in the name of all the panelists present here, let me take this opportunity to thank you very much for having given us this opportunity uh, to share with you some of our best practices. As you rightly said, there are two paramount things that we must consider. The Data Protection Act is of paramount importance to build confidence if we need to bring a good identity uh, framework in a country. Um, let me also take this opportunity. Once Dr. Shamila helped us to get rid of COVID, let me take this opportunity to invite you to Mauritius, and I'm sure Mr. Ramnal will, 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 will do his best to give you a premium visa for this. Thank you, thank you. I, I would definitely would definitely take, take you up on this offer. I look forward to visiting the island and, and to uh, experiencing your hospitality. Thank you. Thank you, thank you very much. Yes. Thank you very much. This yes. is the thank end, you, ID for Africa will be back in two weeks for another session on the Livecast series. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Doctor, and your team. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned to this channel for more coverage on identity matters in Africa. Only from ID for Africa.